it feels like midnight out there tonight. It is like dark. I'm used to being able to see Bell Road while I'm teaching. And normally there's a nice little distraction on Sundays and Wednesdays. I can watch cars going back and forth and people playing soccer out there. But tonight it's just pitch black out there. But I'm glad you're here on this stormy evening. We're on week 13 of our study of the attributes of God. And tonight we come to the big topic of God is holy. And we're going to attempt to discuss the holiness of God in the next 35 minutes and try to seek to do as best justice as we can to it in the time you have. As we think about God as holy, Psalm 99 came to mind. It's there on the first page of your handout. And Psalm 99 reads this, The Lord reigns, but the peoples tremble. He says, Enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Here's tonight's topic. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among the priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And friends, if you're ever discouraged and you're ever losing sight of the greatness of God, this is one of the great psalms to go to and to look at. There's so much of God's majesty, how exalted he is, how great he is in this one passage here. And tonight we're going to focus on that phrase you see three times in there, our Lord God is holy, holy is he. A.W. Tozer, in talking about the holiness of God, said this. He said, let's think a little about the Holy One and his creatures. We see that this Holy One allows only holy beings into his presence. Yet in our humanistic day, our day of a watered-down, sentimental Christianity that blows its nose loudly and makes God into a poor, weak, weeping old man, in this awful day, that sense of the holy isn't upon the church. And so we'll think about that, and we'll talk more about that in your, in your small group tonight at the end of our time. But do we as believers have a sense of the awesomeness of the holiness of God? Or is it perhaps something that's lost? And I pray that tonight as we think about it, the, the Spirit of God might work in our heart wonder and awe at how holy and awesome and big and majestic and great God is. So turn the page here and let's start with this first question, and that is, is holiness an attribute of God to begin with? Well, you might assume yes, but that's not always agreed upon. In fact, a lot of the earliest theologians, if you go look at books about the attributes of God, there is nothing about God's holiness in them. Not, even, not all theologians even classify it as such, and we'll talk about that. But here's two different perspectives. Is holiness an attribute? Yes. And some people would consider holiness to be the most important of all of the attributes. This guy right here in this quote, Thomas Oden, he's a Methodist theologian who passed away about a year ago. He said this, The moral quality that best points to God's incomparably good character is one incomparable in power is holiness. For holiness implies that every excellence fitting to the supreme being is found in God, without blemish or limit. It also implies that all other divine excellencies, goodness, justice, mercy, truth, and grace are unified and made mutually harmonious in infinite degree in God. And so some people like this guy would say that holiness, yes, is an attribute. And of all the attributes, it's the most important attribute. And I can see where they're coming from in that. To a degree, if you think if, there's, if there was no holiness, God's power would be absolutely frightening if he's all-powerful but not holy. If you think about the fact that if God was love but not holy, then his love would be unpredictable. It might be selfish. If God has wisdom but doesn't have holiness, then it wouldn't be good, and we would be scared of that. And so I can see where some people would say this is the most important of all the attributes. In fact, it's the only attribute in Scripture you see three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. 
holy, holy, holy. You don't see a verse of scripture where people are praising or beings are praising God saying, God is love, 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 you know. But holiness is that one that you see over and over. And so it leads some to say it's the most important of that. But yet with that said, other people consider holiness to be a summary of all the attributes and not an attribute in and of itself. And these are not like fringe people who are heretical. These are people who we quote a good bit. James Boyce, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, said holiness is, however, not a distinctive attribute, but rather the combination of all these attributes. Because God's power, he's holy in his power. He's holy in his wisdom. He's holy in his grace. He's holy in his jealousy. He's holy in his love. And so they would see holy being kind of the description that brings everything together. Likewise, Timothy George, the dean up at the uh, Divinity School at Sanford in Birmingham, said holiness so defines the character of God that it can be said to include all the other divine moral perfections as well. And so some, some theologians will say it's not an attribute. Well, where are we going to come down on it? You can disagree on this one, but we're going to come down tonight with, on the approach that holiness is an attribute of God. And yes, remember the unity of God, that all the attributes are fully all of God all the time. And so we're going to see it as such. Yes, all the other attributes are explained in a sense by this, but yet it's a distinct attribute for us to understand God's character. So that's at least how we're going to approach it tonight. So what then is God's holiness? Well, first of all, what is holiness in general? Generally, to be holy means to be separate or to be set apart. The word in Hebrew you see throughout the Old Testament for holiness means to be set apart, particularly set apart for God. And so you'll see in Scripture things like holy ground or the holy Sabbath, or the holy place, or in Israel, described as a holy nation. They weren't a holy nation because they were so great and big and mighty. They were a holy nation because God and his sovereign plan had set them apart for his purposes. So holy, just in a sense, means to be set apart. Now, how does that apply to God? How is God set apart? Well, anytime we try to define these attributes, it gets really tough, doesn't it? Especially trying to describe the holiness of God. So here's some attempts, and I use the word attempt for a reason. Because, I mean, our words fall short of describing the holiness and majesty of God. But here's some attempts to define God's holiness. A.W. Tozer, holiness means purity, but purity doesn't describe it well enough. I think you get where he's going with this. I mean, yes, it's purity, but there's something more, and our words don't really suffice for that. Herman Bavink says this, Holiness is purity, free from every stain, wholly perfect and immaculate in every detail. God's holiness is revealed in his entire relation to his people, in election, in the covenant, in his special revelation, in his dwelling among them. And so he's seeing this in terms of whole perfection. Holiness is seen in everything God does with his people. Wayne Grudem, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin. I think that's where my brain goes a lot with the definition. But he goes on and says, and devoted to seeking his own honor. Or I think of my favorite is the one from A.W. Pink. God's holiness is the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He has absolute purity, and I love this phrase, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. It's not just he's free of sin, he's unsullied. He's not been touched even by the shadow of sin. He's that perfect. And so what do we do with it? I didn't attempt to write my own definition of it. I just underlined some key words, I think, that describe holiness. Purity, holy, perfect. Holiness is in his entire relation to his people. He's separate from sin. He's a sum of all moral excellency, and he's not even touched by the shadow of sin. And so in your small groups tonight, you're going to try to define it and see if you can come up with a good definition. I want to hear what you guys try to come up with in your small groups tonight on that. So turn the page, page three. Where do we see holiness of God? Everywhere. It is throughout all the pages of Scripture. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. You see it from Genesis to Revelation. You see it in every genre of Scripture. You see it in the parables. You see it in the prophecy. You see it in historical narrative. All the stuff we talked about back at the beginning of the year of how to interpret each genre, you see it everywhere in scripture. And so I broke it down into four categories just to help us think about how massive the holiness of God is as seen in the totality 
of Scripture. And so tonight, instead of trying to give my definitions of it, we're just going to read a bunch of Scripture on this page to try to get our minds around the holiness of God. First, we see the holiness of God in the names of God. Psalm 71, 22. I will also praise you with a heart for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. It's not a description there. It's His name. God is the Holy One of Israel. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Again, a name of God there. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Can't get more clear there. Whose name is what? Holy. His name is holy. And then Luke chapter 1, verse 49. This is Mary's song of praise as she's praising God for what he's chosen to do through her. And she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So you see, even the faith of Mary when she's been chosen to be the one to carry the Messiah, and she proclaims, Holy is his name. You see it not just in the names of God, you see it in the descriptions of God as well. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. He is majestic in holiness. Psalm 77, 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Isaiah doesn't want us to miss it, does he? He's the holy God who himself shows himself holy. He's the holy God who shows himself holy. I love the repetition there of that. James 1, 13. In this one, you don't see the word holy, but you see the idea. God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Again, remember that definition from A.W. Pink. He's not even stained by the shadow of sin. He cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Or 1 John 1, 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Again, not even a shadow of sin touches him and his holiness. It's not just in the names and descriptions of God. We see it, and this is pretty cool here. These are some of my favorite texts here. You see the holiness of God in the declarations of spiritual beings. Beyond what we see in our daily life, there's an unseen world of angels and demons. There are beings around his throne that we have a hard time even imagining and fathoming. The scripture describes for us. And these beings are understanding and proclaiming the holiness of God. Isaiah 6 is one of the ones we go to a lot on this. I love it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Verse 2. Now try to imagine this as we read this. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Okay, can, can, you, get, can you even picture that? This is so different than anything that we can imagine. These beings that have six wings covering their face, their feet, and with two they're flying. So try to, as best you can, imagine that. And this is what they're saying. Verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Friends, that is absolutely incredible to see what's happening in heaven. These spiritual beings, these seraphim, are calling out holy, holy, holy in their worship of God. We see it in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, as children of God, we'll get to see this with our eyes one day. These beings that we can't even fathom around the throne of God proclaiming out how holy he is. And then Mark chapter 1, this is not just the beings who follow God and serve God in heaven. Even the demons understand this. Though they don't believe and follow, they know it's true. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The spiritual beings, angels and demons alike, understand that God is holy. And just as you're thinking about the text from Revelation Isaiah, just tie that back to what we looked at last week with the goodness of God. These are created beings. Why did God create a being covered with eyes? Why did God create a being with six wings to cover their feet and their face and fly with? Because God is good. God's creative. This is the creativity, the goodness of God on display to show us how awesome and amazing he is. Finally, we see the, the holiness of God and the declaration of God's people. There's many we could cite, but there's two here. Psalm 22, 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. This is Psalm of David. This is King David crying out to God, you are holy. Likewise, Psalm 103, also a Psalm of David. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So even in the praises of God, you see David crying out and declaring that God is holy. So throughout the Bible, in the names of God, the descriptions of God, the declarations of people and spiritual beings alike, you see the holiness of God on display everywhere. Let's think more about that. What are these aspects of God's holiness here on page 4? First, let's just remind us that only God is fully holy. Nothing else is fully holy besides God. Only God is untouched by evil. Again, back to that first quote, that quote from Pink. He's not even touched by the shadow of sin. Nothing else in the universe that can be said of besides him. Again, to quote Pink, he said, He only is independently, infinitely, infinitely, immutably holy. Big enough adjectives there to confuse us, right? That God alone is holiness is independently holy. He's infinitely holy. He's immutably, unchangeably holy. That God is the only one that can be set off. You see it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There's no one else in holiness like God. Or Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been Revealed. God only, nothing else in the universe can say this besides God. He alone is untouched by evil. Second of all, you know this, but it's a good reminder for us. All three persons of the Trinity are declared holy. Go back to when Bruce Ware from Southern Seminary came and taught us back some months ago and talked about the Trinity, that God is one God, three persons, and he's equally all the attributes to all the people. It's not that, that, that God the Son is merciful and God the Father is just. No, God is fully in all three persons of the God have fully all these attributes all the time. Therefore, we'd expect this to be true as well. God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, and God the Holy Spirit is holy. And we see that in multiple places, just one example of each. John 17, 11. This is Jesus in his high priestly prayer praying for his disciples. He prays to the Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. So you see Jesus describing his Father as holy. You see that of Jesus himself described as holy in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So just a hint, if you need a good definition of holiness, I think you got one right there, right? Jesus is holy. He is innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There's a good picture for us of what holiness of God looks like. And then Romans chapter 1, verse 4, this is describing, first of all, Jesus here, that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So even in that description, you see the Holy Spirit described as the Spirit of holiness. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally holy all of the time. With that said, then number three, all that God does, says, and requires is holy. We talked about this before, but out of his character, his actions flow. If he's holy in his being, you expect holy words, holy actions to come from it. We used the imagery before, was down in the well, comes up in the bucket. You, you drop the bucket down in the well, and if there's dirty water in the well, you're not going to get clean water in the bucket. What comes up in the bucket is what's already in the well. And if God in his being is perfectly holy, then everything that comes out of his mouth will be holy. That everything he does is holy, and then everything he requires will be holy. Again, to quote A.W. Pink, who's really quotable on this topic, he said, holiness is the rule of all his action. Everything that God does, says, and requires is holy. We see this in several places in Scripture. Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So he's righteous, he's holy in all that he does. Everything that flows out of his being is right, is righteous, is holy, is perfect, because he himself is such. What he says to us is the same thing. I love Psalm 19. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And friends, I just wonder how different my life and all of our lives would be if we realized that what God required of us was holy and good. To tie it back to what we talked about last week. That what he requires of us is not some unrealistic burden. It's not something that's to deprive us of joy in life. The laws of God are good. They are holy because the one who gave them is holy. And we see that in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And friends, how different would our lives be if we really could grasp that when God tells us, do not do this or do this, but he's saying is holy because he himself is holy as well. All that God does, says, and requires is holy. So turn the page. So that leads to the question, how does such a holy God view sin? Page five here. This isn't the feel-good stuff, but this is true. Number one, God hates all sin. And unfortunately, I think this is lost in some churches today. And so when we think about the attributes of God, one reason we do this, one reason we preach through books of the Bible here, is because we want to know all of who God is, not just the parts we run to. You know, it feels good to talk about God's love and his mercy and his kindness. We don't normally just pick up the, in the morning and be like, man, I really want to go find a passage about God's wrath today. That's just not what we're drawn to, but it's part of his nature. Likewise, his holiness has implications for his view of sin. God hates all sin. We see it in multiple places in the Bible. Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And not the text we run to to preach that God hates evildoers. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 32. The devious person is an abomination to the Lord. There's no mincing of words here. How God views sin, because God is holy, his hatred of sin is very obvious. Or Proverbs chapter 15, verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Those are just three of many texts we could cite. But bigger than that, think big picture with me for a minute. The whole law shows how much God hates sin. Be holy for I am holy. God is saying, here's what I require of my people. I am holy. I hate sin. Therefore, this is how you are to live. The entirety of the law shows us 
God's commitment to holiness and his hatred of sin, but even more so, the cross ultimately shows how much God hates sin. And we think of the cross so oftentimes just in terms of God's mercy and kindness and the example Jesus set and the love he showed. But friends, the cross shows us, and we'll get to this when we get into God's wrath in several weeks. Which again, I wish Greg had picked that one to teach instead of grace and left me with wrath. But when we, get, when we get to the wrath of God in several weeks, we'll talk more about this. But the cross shows how much God hates sin. A.W. Pink said, Wondrously and yet most solemnly does the atonement display God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. How hateful must sin be to God for him to punish it to his utmost deserts when it was imputed to his son. Friends, he didn't, the father didn't put all that on Jesus just to do something that he thought would be cool and neat. He did it because he hates sin so much. You'll see him, sin has to be dealt with, and we see that in the way it was handled, it was handled on the cross. That leads to number two here. God's holiness means that he must punish Sin. God's holiness means that he must punish sin. Friends, God is too holy to overlook sin. I think in our culture there's this mindset that God just kind of sweeps under the rug. Or, oh, I like that person. That's a pretty good person compared to others. He'll be okay. No, friends, God's holiness means every single sin, every sinful thought, every single word, every single action must be punished. His holiness, remember, cannot be touched by the shadow of sin. Therefore, God can't sweep anything under the rug or be like, oh, it's okay. I like him. I like her. His holiness cannot allow it. His holiness means every single sin must be punished. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, the holiness of God is such that God's righteous good judgments mean that there will be a day of wrath against sin. Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Sin will be judged, sin will be punished. God cannot overlook any sin. That means, number three, which I think you know this, either Christ takes that punishment for us, or we must bear it ourselves. There's there's no overlooking sin, there's no one getting by this. Either our sin is paid for by Jesus, or we will pay for the penalty of it either way. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So after that, after we die, comes the judgment. Will have Christ taken the penalty for us, or will we bear it ourselves? Now this quote just floored me when I read it this week, and I've been thinking on it this week. Just listen to this, because I think we get terminology confused sometimes. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin. So just pause for a minute and let that one sink in. God often forgives sinners, but God never forgives sin. Why? The sinner is only forgiven on the ground of another having borne his punishment. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, from Hebrews 9, 22. I think we all know that's true, but I think we lose the grasp of that, and I know in my heart I do sometimes, that when God forgives us, he's forgiving us because he's put the penalty on Christ. He's not forgiving our sin. He's taking our sin and putting it on Christ where his wrath is being poured out. He doesn't forgive any sin. Every sin is paid for either by Christ on the cross or by us when we stand before the judgment. And so I just encourage you to meditate and let that one sink in. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never, no, never forgives sin. So turn the page. How should God's holiness change us on this? Well, 
again, we talk about this as we go through these attribute studies. This is not just some arbitrary concept. These are not just theological thoughts for theological thoughts. It's not philosophy for us just to get to ramble on these things. God's holiness, each attribute of God should change us on these things. First of all, the holiness of God should lead us to recognize our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness. Friends, I would contest that we cannot recognize God's holiness without recognizing our own sinfulness and unworthiness. If we really would pause and see the holiness and the greatness of God, we will have to come face to face with our own sinfulness. Timothy George says, In all genuine spiritual experience, there are two, and these two are inseparably linked. A high sense of God's majesty and holiness and the apprehension of radical depravity and human sin. Friends, these are linked. If we understand God's majesty and holiness, then we also understand our depravity. If we lose a sense of God's holiness, we lose a sense of our own depravity, I think. A.W. Tozer said, when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of an intellectual grasp, but also a sense of personal vileness, which is almost too much to bear. Friends, I wonder if that, going back to that first quote on the first page about how a sense of holiness is perhaps lost in churches today, I wonder if part of it is because we know if we come face-to-face with holiness, we come face-to-face with our own vileness, our own sinfulness, and we run from that. Because how many of us really run to things that make us feel uncomfortable? And I think this is one of those things that does that to us. We already read from Isaiah 6 earlier, but I want us to look now at how people respond when they come face-to-face with the holiness of God. We already read part of Isaiah 6, but let me pick up in verse 3 there. And one called to another, these are the seraphim, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. This is a great prophet of God. It's not like someone who's just on the fringe, you know, kind of a a back row pew sitter of the temple here. This is a prophet of God who's being used by the Lord. And when he comes and sees in this vision the holiness of God, he goes, woe is me, I am lost. He realizes his own unworthiness and it is overwhelming to him there in that. Second of all, God's holiness should not only help us see our own sinfulness, Number two, it should lead us to strive for holiness. Remember, this is a communicable attribute. That means God shares it with us in part. And in part is that key word again, where I said only God is fully holy. But this is an attribute that God shares with us in part. God doesn't call us to be omnipotent and all-powerful. God doesn't call us to be omnipresent, though on some weeks like this, it'd be really nice to be multiple places once, right? We could do a lot more. God doesn't call us to be those things. But God does demand of us to be holy. And you'll see this in the scripture. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It doesn't get much plainer than that. And in case we miss it, the New Testament picks that up and reminds of that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, now let's quote back to Leviticus, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God requires it. It's a communicable attribute. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and verse 14, talking about earthly discipline from our fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, let those words sink in. Strive for holiness without which you won't have as quite an abundant and fun life. No. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
But let me remind us in this, if we want to grow in holiness, this is not some self-help thing that we can do. It's not a striving more and more. This is God's grace growing us. We call it sanctification, when God changes. Now, we have an obligation to put ourselves in the path of grace. How does God sanctify us? He uses His Word. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses Christian community. But it's His work, friends. We can't choose sanctification. We can't make ourselves be sanctified. He does the work through His Holy Spirit. We just put ourselves in the path of grace to experience that. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And notice the wording there. It's not strive harder to be sanctified. It's may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless, be holy there, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, this is not us striving harder. This is us putting ourselves in the path of grace and crying out to God to sanctify us and to put holiness in our life because he requires it of us and we can trust him to give us grace to do that which he has required us to do. And how should God's holiness change us? It leads us to recognize our own sinfulness. It leads us to strive for holiness. (coughs) Excuse me, number three, friends, it needs to lead us to worship. These attributes of God should drive us to our knees in amazement of the greatness of God and that he in his kindness has called us to himself and given us eyes to see and it should lead us to praise him. We see this in multiple places in the scripture. Psalm chapter 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Friends, the more we grasp the holiness of God, the more it should drive us to sing praise and to give thanks to his name. Psalm 99, verse 5. This is great. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. I get the imagery of worshiping at his footstool. A footstool is the lowest place. If you're sitting in a chair, the lowest place. When we get the holiness of God and our own unworthiness, we're not like running up to him. We're at his footstool in the lowest place of humility to praise him and worship him. We realize how holy and big he is and how sinful we are. We worship him at his footstool there, a place of humility. Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. But this is the cool thing. It's not just us seeing this now. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Friends, there is a day coming when people from every ethnic group on the planet understand the holiness of God and are joining these beings around his throne and joining us singing to God how holy he is. Not just one race, not just one ethnicity, not just one background. People from every race, every ethnic group on the planet will one day be around his throne proclaiming how holy he is. And in the kindness of God, we get to join in that great song. So here's what I want you to think about as you think about the holiness of God in your groups tonight. So turn to page 7 before we divide up into our groups here. Number one, I kind of warned you this one, how would you define holiness? I didn't give you a good definition. I gave you several people's feeble attempts at defining, gave you some words and concepts, but... How would you define holiness, God's holiness? And then how would you define holiness in the lives of believers? So again, let's try to get our minds around this. What is it for God to be holy? But then what does it look like for you and I to be holy? What does that mean? So try to see if you can't define that. Number two, read the quote from A.W. Tozer back on page one. Flip back over there. This is the one where he said, Let's think a little about the Holy One and His creature. We see that this Holy One allows only holy beings into His presence. Yet in our humanistic day... Our day of a watered-down, sentimental Christianity that blows its nose loudly and makes God into a poor, weak, weeping old man. This awful day, that sense of the holy isn't upon the church. She just talked about, do you agree with him on that? It's okay if you agree or disagree. It's not a right or wrong. But do you agree that a sense of God's holiness is lacking today? And what makes you think that? What evidence do you cite for that? Number three, do we tend to approach God with reverence and seriousness, knowing that he's holy? Why or why not? Number four, How would a greater understanding of God's holiness 
change how we approach God. Even if we understand God's holy, if we were to grow in understanding what it means that he's holy, how would that change what our approach to him daily looks like on that? <clears throat> Number five, how would a greater understanding of God's holiness change how we fight sin and strive for holiness in our own lives? We all know people with deep strongholds of sin in their life, and even if you want to apply that in an extra way here, how does pointing them to God's holiness help them find holiness and find freedom from the strongholds? And then what we ask every week, what songs do you know that describe God's holiness? Yeah, immediately you're going to go to Holy, Holy, Holy. So I'm going to steal that one from you and be mean there, right? So what other songs do you know besides Holy, Holy, Holy describe the holiness of God? Because, again, the songs we sing are singing proclamations of what we believe God is, who we believe is. And then a question for you not to necessarily answer in your group, but for you to think about this week. And that's, I'm going to quote this from Wayne Grudem. It says, Are there activities or relationships in your present pattern of life that are hindering your growth in holiness because they make it difficult for you to be separated from sin and devoted to seeking God's honor. I just encourage you in this, because again, these are not just theoretical concepts. This is a communicable attribute. God is holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. And are there things in your life, in your pattern of life, that is hindering you from being what God has called you to be? And that is a, his, one of his holy children. And if so, my encouragement to you is to find a brother or sister this week, maybe your spouse, maybe someone else in the church, maybe me, one of the elders, one of the deacons, and go to them and say, there's some stuff in my life that's hindering me being who God wants me to be. I'm not being holy as he is holy. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? And let's get into Christian community and help one another strive for holiness in these things. So let's divide into groups. Uh, we can get a group back here with Dave, a group up here with Greg, a group back there with Steve, and a group up here with CJ. There's a baby. CJ, if you want to head over this way, I think that'll be good for our four groups tonight. So Dave in the back, Greg up front here, Steve back there, and CJ over here. Let's divide up in those four groups. Enjoy the discussion.